politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen chomping at the bit to fight for what matters, activism, information, truth, knowledge. We cover it all here on the issues that matter in the way they matter, and most importantly, at the time they matter here at CR Podcast. Daniel Horowitz back here for the end of the week. It is Friday, and boy, do we have a lot to cover. So originally, I reserved today to get on Heather McDonald, our resident expert on crime issues and policing, to discuss this whole Tyre Nichols story, the beating of Tyre Nichols and the death of Tyre Nichols in Memphis, and how once again the GOP is misfiring. You have Tim Scott out there talking about police reform and not focusing on the right issues. But then, of course, we have the Chinese balloon, or it's more like a blimp, You have that, you have the Project Veritas revelation that the same senior Pfizer scientists uh, that they've been uh, punking with several videos admitted that the menstrual cycles with women being off kilter is a huge problem, and they are worried about uh, reproductive issues. It's like never a dull moment. But there's all one common thread to them. And, you know, before we get to Heather and, and the crime issue, just, you know, an overview of crime, what needs to be done. The GOP and the conservative movement is always a day late and a dollar short. They're always too late. They always support the very policies that got us into this position. Then they glum onto a shiny object to complain about the Democrats on that issue. And then even then, they don't really get to the bottom of it. And, and I think that's a good time just, you know, as this issue is very fluid, just my baseline thoughts on the story of this Chinese espionage blimp supposedly flying over Montana. Um. You know, the sad thing about this whole th- balloon thing is that we can't trust our own government. That's the, my biggest observation. We don't even know what the truth is. Look, we never did on national security issues, even before the rise of the Fourth Reich. But the biggest thing is our government is a client state of China. You know, we all agree China is a big problem. But the biggest problem is our own government, which is a client state of China. So... You know what? What is with this blimp, and what isn't? Where it came from? What it did? Who knows? You know, everyone's talking about. Oh, we need to shoot it down. Oh, look, Biden's so weak; he's not shooting it down. And I don't necessarily disagree with that, but that's a shiny object. That's not even the point. Look, this could have a payload on it. Who knows what it has on it? The government's saying it doesn't, but maybe it does. Now, I'm not trying to defend them, as it, you know, to, to say why they're not shooting it down. But it could be it has payload on it. And that in itself would be a stronger issue. Not that they're being weak, not shooting it down. But how does something like that get in our airspace to begin with? So my first baseline thought is, for years, Republicans have been throwing $850 billion at the defense intel establishment. And yet, it never seems to be there for us when we need it. So that, that, that's lesson number one, that before Republicans debate the dollar number of our defense industry and complain that we can't force a debt ceiling you know, budget deal because we're too scared to cut defense spending, why don't we first focus on the policies and the mission and deterrent of the military before we get to the dollar number? So that's number one. Number two, isn't it interesting 
how almost every Republican that's going to cry over all oh, the balloon and then Biden's not doing enough. They pissed away our focus, our weaponry over $100 billion on freaking Ukraine, telling us that Russia is the biggest threat to us, which was absurd. Every single second, time, treasure, and talent you are diverting from China is a waste of time. And all these Republicans crying about it are part of that. Number three, it's not about their ability to get some sort of espionage balloon. It sounds very scary and cool and is going to get attention, and I'm all for that. But it's their enemy within that they have embedded themselves, thanks to both parties, in every aspect of research, science, medicine, academia, government, technology, trade theft, counter-intel, espionage. You know, one of the biggest things I've been talking about for years, fun fact, what has been the number one source of both immigration visas and non-immigrant visas every year? You'd think Mexico. Everyone always thinks it's Mexico. Mexico is at the top there. But the number one source year after year after year after year for like three, four decades is China. Doesn't mean everyone from there is bad. There's some terrific people. But it means that when you are engaged in such an asymmetrical warfare where their primary tactic is counter-intel and trade theft, and they, we know they use immigration and visas for it, and we let in 350,000 students a year, I'm not seeing any Republican leader say we need to have a moratorium on immigration from China. Again, you could have a terrific person going into a technical field. They love America. They want to get rid of, they want to escape China. The Chinese government gives them a call and says, hey, here's what you're going to do for us. And we know where your relatives live. That's why you don't, you just don't do that when you're in a state of war, particularly this type of war with a country like that. So the point is, like, they'll focus, oh, Biden needs to be tougher on China. Suddenly, after years of Republicans kissing up to China, refusing to recognize the trade problems, the economic problems, the dependency problems, the immigration problems, suddenly now they glum onto it rhetorically. But again, always too late, a, do- a day late, a dollar short, and not really fully on message. And we're seeing this on every issue. We're seeing it on immigration. They'll focus on the border, but not interior enforcement and state enforcement, which is really where it's at. For years, we had to fight our own party on it. Now they're a day late, a dollar short. It's just enough to be a talking point against Democrats. We see that on energy. We see that on every issue. Certainly on COVID, we see that. Very, very limited. It's like when you're playing catch-up, when you've had both parties use all their tools to help that problem, to enable that problem, you need to triple down, and they never do enough. Certainly we see that on COVID. But today where I want to take this is on crime. And look, at present, in the short term, the bigger threat to your security in many parts of the country isn't China. I'm not saying it's not a problem. It's our own domestic problems. That you have thousands upon thousands of the worst violent criminals released. I've been warning about this for a decade. I was, a, I was literally the lone voice writing endless columns on crime. I was like, dude, this is the one thing we defeated and succeeded at, probably in our history, reducing crime, and then beginning 
10, 12 years ago, the Koch brothers working with Soros got every Republican legislature and then eventually under Trump, Congress, to promote this de-incarceration criminal justice deform agenda. And notice I'm not even talking about policing. That's not even the thing. It's the sentencing. It's all that. And, you know, recently this came to light again with this beating of Tyre Nichols, which appears to legitimately be a police brutality. But it's so blatant that it makes you wonder, what's the real story there? Some are talking about maybe there is affirmative action hires, which is true. All five are black, all the cops. Um, it's true that they're making it a racial issue, when in fact it's not. Um, you know, we need more fun. So Republicans are like, you know, Tim Scott saying, well, Democrats tried to block me working with police reform. And look, I'm not defending police, just the opposite. With COVID fascism, with the FBI, with J6, I'm more vigilant than ever and concerned about police brutality. But the point is not we need more funding for the police, more funding for tactics and training. Clearly, there was no training that was followed here. There's no such training that guides them in doing that. So again, something's very funny there. There's rumors around the internet that there might have been something personal with one of the cops. I don't know, but it almost looks looks like that. But the point is, we always get caught up on shiny objects. You see, Democrats don't want to fund the police enough. We want to fund better training. That's kind of the Republican response to it. But the real issue is that it has created a vicious cycle. And it goes something like this. The more they cry racism, the more the criminal justice system releases criminals early the more pervasively police are confronted with violent criminals on the streets, and then the more they have to use deadly force, the more likely some will make mistakes or overreact, the more this induces cries of racism, spawns even more affirmative action hiring in police, less skilled police are then dealing with even more criminals on the street, then the criminals get emboldened, the more tragedies occur on both sides, as more calls for more leniency on criminals accelerates. But the antecedent to all of this is, if you actually locked up the known career violent criminals, you would cut 90% of crime. The reality is we have an under-incarceration problem. The reality is I would much rather focus policy on red line violent criminal statutes of incarceration governing parole, bail, and sentencing than, than policing. Obviously, you need a police force at some level to apprehend but the main thing is not policing. In my view, it's the broader criminal justice system. It's deterrent. And certainly with juveniles. And that's really the big crisis with so much of this crime. That, to me, is the best way in a world of anarcho-tyranny, when the police are being used against us but not the bad guys. You know, again, you have notorious exceptions like this case where they overreact or whatever – out of 28.8 million police-initiated interactions a year. But the bigger thing is, to me, I don't want to just indiscriminately give more funding to police and give them more weapons and whatever. I mean, I'm worried they're going to use it on us. But to me, if you put into statute rape, robbery, murder, you know, all this stuff, three strikes and you're out, that's a lot harder to be used against us and it will actually solve the crime issue. So I want to flesh this out more with our guest. First, our sponsor today. Today's interview is sponsored by Jace Medical. Um, you know, again, all these years selling us out to China, we have supply chain problems, among other things. 
where all the precursors to medicines are made overseas. And now we, we have a problem where you can't even get a lot of medications like amoxicillin, doxycycline, augmentin, a lot of children's uh, you know antibiotics you need, UTIs, respiratory infections, sinusitis, skin infections, among others. One of the things we've been focusing on the show is how to take control of your own health during the Fourth Reich when they're foisting bioproducts on you and then blocking you from getting vital medicines. So if you go to jacemedical.com slash today, use offer code REVIEW10 at checkout for $10 off your order, you can purchase a Jace case. What's a Jace case? It's a pack of five different courses of antibiotics uh, that you, you need that in case you're traveling or you can't get it for whatever reason, you have a jerky doctor who won't prescribe, um, they prescribe it for you. So you have to fill out you know, some information about yourself so they could give a prescription, uh, fill out the questionnaire. It doesn't take more than 10 minutes. It's simple, affordable, and you have that peace of mind that you have that in your prep kit of food and whatever else you have. You need a Jace case of antibiotics. So go to jacemedical.com and use offer code REVIEW10 at checkout for $10 off. So folks, over the last decade, when it's been pretty lonely in the tough-on-crime world. Although now, everyone's suddenly tough on crime, but a little bit distracted. Always focused on these police dust-ups, yay funding for police, nay funding per- for police, uh, strawman arguments that Democrats are going to defund the police when really what they're actually doing is defanging them. But there's something much broader here, that we have a system where we are not deterring criminals. We're talking about the police, we're talking about black suspects, black criminals, rightly shot by police, wrongly shot by police. But there's the forgotten man in this entire discussion, which is the victim of crime. Just what are we going to do about out-of-control crime, which largely arose because we undid a lot of the tough-on-crime policies from those two decades where it worked? Now, one of the leaders in this movement, if not the leader— for many, many decades, is Heather McDonald. She's been on the show before. It's been way too long. Uh, she's a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, had a terrific column out on this Memphis story. Uh, Tyra Nichols, uh, earlier this week, she was on with Tucker Carlson. And I figured we brought in the discussion with her today. You could follow her at HMD at MI on Twitter. Um, again, does great work at City Journal and other places as well. Heather, thanks so much for fitting us into your schedule today. Always an honor to talk with you, Daniel. You're, you're definitely the, the groundbreaker in this discourse. So, you know, it's eerie. I remember I called you up desperately, maybe six years ago, when I saw Republicans and then even the Trump administration getting roped into this premise of criminal justice reform, de-incarceration. We have too many criminals locked up. And I was like, you know, on, on what earth are you living? I mean, if you just take the top four crime categories, the violent crime categories, we don't even clear most of the cases and we don't even catch the people. Uh, you know, if you caught all of them, the prisons would swell just on account of, uh, you know, those crime uh, categories without even focusing on guns and drugs and any of that. And I was like, what are we going to do? And you told me something to the effect of, well, a lot of people forgot what it was like to live under that era in the 70s and 80s. It's got to get worse. Well, it did. Where are we in terms of 
policy. Do you think we are in a ripe period of time to finally get tougher on crime again? No, I don't, Daniel. I I would have thought that if that were the case, there would have been much more of a move to Republicans in the midterm elections. Uh, Optimists point to the fact that Republican gubernatorial candidate Lee Zeldin in New York City came within 300,000 votes of winning the the governor's race uh, in November against the left-wing Kathy Hochul uh, as signs that, no, no, the, the crime issue is really a winning electoral issue. Well, there were many, many other uh, races where crime should have been even more of an issue, such as Los Angeles mayoral's election, uh, many races across Wisconsin and, and, and Pennsylvania, Chicago, Illinois, that the Democrats continued to win. So it's really a question of, you know, white people are the main ones that are talking about black victimization. It's quite weird. If it, The New York Times always accuses Fox News or me, you know, not me by name, but, but anybody who talks about with, with sorrow and, and pity and, and outrage at the rise in violent street crime, which is still overwhelmingly a function of black-on-black crime, when we talk about that, we're accused of being racist. And so either two things are going to happen. If white kids start getting gunned down in drive-by shootings, that'll make a difference. Mm. Uh, or whites are just going to say, well, okay, to hell with it. Uh, we'll go on to other things. I mean, the, the crime wave is spreading into suburbs for carjackings, uh, the, the, the follow-home robberies that were afflicting L.A., uh, for much of 2021 and into 2022, where people would be targeted eating in nice restaurants in, in Beverly Hills or the west side of Los Angeles, followed to their homes uh, by gang members from south central L.A. and stuck up at gunpoint and, you know, their, their jewelry or wallets taken. Uh, so it is spreading, but still the bulk of it is in the inner city and and. Uh, you know, the mo- most black leaders are not talking about it. There's a the chief of D.C. police right now, Washington, D.C. police, has spoken out against this very radical ongoing raft of so-called criminal justice reforms that are dismantling the criminal justice system in the name of fighting disparate impact on blacks. And he says, well, what about the victims? And it's it's a very bizarre thing, Daniel. The Black Lives Matter activists would rather they valorize black criminals over black victims. It's not in, intuitively apparent why that should be the case. It, you know, it'd be more apparent if it was black, vic, uh, black criminals and white victims and disproportionately all interracial crime. Blacks commit 88% of all interracial crime between blacks and whites and whites mm. and blacks. So. So it is black on white, but it is still mostly black on black. And yet they prefer to go with the criminals over the black victims. It's, a, it's, it's utterly perplexing. And this is what's so frustrating when you have a, a case of a legitimate police brutality case in Memphis, because it derails the entire focus on 
you know, the broader criminal justice system like you're talking about, and it makes it about police tactics, and there's legitimate things to say about that, but no one's talking about how Memphis has seen record, record murders per capita the last couple of years. Uh, do you have any good statistics to just give over to people? The excess black homicide deaths just from the past few years. Well, uh, 2020, following the George Floyd riots, the crime increase began after the George Floyd riots nationally. It is not pandemic-related. It did not begin after the shutdowns, uh, which is the left-wing narrative. It's, oh, it was all because people were so traumatized of losing their jobs, and so they went out and started shooting each other on streets. No, excuse me, that is prima facie preposterous, and it is not borne out by the data. The crime increase began after George Floyd. So late June, late May it began, and it resulted in the largest one-year increase in homicide in this nation's history, 29%. And the number of black homicide victims went up to, to 10,000 in 2020. I think in 2019, it, it, it maybe been around at most 8,000, but, but possibly 7,000. So another several thousand lost black lives thanks to the depolicing that went on following the George Floyd race riots. And the, the homicide increase continued into 2021. So you know, another several thousand black lives. And it's not just gangbangers shooting each other. These are black toddlers that Mm. are being gunned down in their parents' cars, in their front porches, in their bedrooms, jumping on trampolines at birthday parties, in, in public parks. It is relentless, heartbreaking. Dozens and dozens of black children shot in drive by shootings each year. As I say, if these were white kids there would be a national revolution. And the media looks the other way because the only time it cares about black lives is those rare instances when yep. a black is shot by a police officer. It's amazing. 28 million police-initiated interactions per year, roughly. So, you know, you're going to have a few bad ones, and each one's focused on, like, the death of Princess Diana, and yet all these other cases. So, we, you know, I'm, I'm on this kind of group chat and and we have this jailbreak, um, going jailbreak thread. And every day, every high profile, terrible story, um, it's it's the same story. Under incarcerated <laughs> career yeah. criminal, they get out early. And this is not. So you talked about New York and California and how the voters didn't respond. I mean, I agree with that. But let's just say, all right, you know, we have inveterate. Um, partisanship on so many other issues so people just won't cross over but i'm talking about red states we have the mm-hmm. same problem i i talk to these state legislators and they talk about oh we're gonna fund the police i'm like well okay that's that's not really you know it's part of the puzzle so there's a huge problem with with the bail issue in houston which you know houston is a blue city but you know the state government could step in we talk about this guy jonathan vera he was charged with murdering someone during a home invasion in 2017 four years later he's his capital bond is lowered to fifty thousand. shortly afterwards he's convicted of another murder and then even now he's only getting a 35 year sentence um and this is texas 
And I'm finding across the board, again, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, drugs, I don't care. Okay, whatever, let's put that on the shelf. But I'm talking about multiple robberies, multiple murders, and they just don't, a lot of them don't serve a lot of time, even in red states. Whatever happened to three strikes and you're out? Well, all disparate impact. Now, I would say a 35-year sentence is pretty high. I mean, that that's going to result, I would think, in prisoner menopause, which is the only thing that we really know, you know, reliably works to change a criminal disposition. Um, so, no, but I mean, that was two ca- two capital murders. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, you're right. 35 years would take someone off the streets. But what that means is like, you know, the multiple assaults on the subways and the robberies and that that's going to be much, much, much lower. Mm-hmm. Well, the name of the game today, everything in the criminal justice system that you see going on and maybe scratching your heads if you're noticing, you know, why why aren't prosecutors prosecuting? Why aren't judges incarcerating? It's all because of disparate impact, because when you do enforce the law in a colorblind constitutional fashion, you will have a disparate impact on black criminals. And that's not because the law is racist. It's because the rates of criminal offending are so disproportionately high. Blacks die of gun homicide between the ages of 10 and 24 at 25 times the rate of whites between the ages of 10 and 24. And they're not being killed by the cops. They're not being killed by whites. They're being killed by other blacks because blacks commit gun homicide at virtually 25 times higher. And even red state politicians are terrified, uncomfortable with that. Yeah, they're uncomfortable with the charge of racial disparities in their institutions or in their policing. And they'd rather blame the messenger, which is the police and say, well, they must be racist, you know, because when they go where the crime is, they inevitably make more stops and arrests of blacks. Yeah, I mean, this this is what really bothers me, that, you know, yeah, there's robust support around broad funding for police in Republican circles, but, I mean, the only state I've seen this, ironically, actually is Tennessee. They are the speaker. We don't have a bill number, but they are tightening up their three strikes and you're out. I know he's very committed to that, but in most states... Um, they're not really dealing, and, and Governor DeSantis definitely has broached the uh, sentencing issue, the early release issue. He's uh, he's always been into that, but they're the exception. Still, you have this chanting about over incarceration. Yeah, now, and 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 can you just give us a sense of, you know, looking at the picture, and and believe me, I mean, we've been victims of political persecution i think in the last number of years there are bs crimes and there's over incarceration with january 6 but that that's not what they're talking about um right. right so broadly speaking try to quantify for the audience this sense of do we really have an over incarceration problem well a left wing organization justice a sort of an anti policing criminal reform organization several years ago estimated that only 3% of all violent felons ever get any kind of institutional confinement time. You know, the, the whole system works to triage people out as much as possible. And so most criminals are given probation. That means they're just sent back to the community and, and asked in a very polite manner, please come back and check in with your probation officer every so often, which they usually don't. Uh, But there's a huge amount of crime 
that goes on that never nobody ever ends up in prison for. You have to have a very, very serious criminal record to interest a yes. big city police uh, uh, district attorney in you. Uh, you know, I remember talking to a DA in Los Angeles who said, well, if somebody steals a car, I'm not interested in him. Uh, I'm not going to take that case to, to trial. But if if you steal it with a gun, in other words, carjack somebody, then I'll look at it. Well, for most people whose cars are stolen, they would regard that as a serious crime, yes. but not not for the not for the system, which is so overwhelmed with the amount of crime that it it does everything it can to keep people out of prison. So I'm a I'm a strong believer in a lot of policy issues that and crime is no different, that it's more of a policy and legal problem than it is a funding problem. And obviously, we need tougher sentencing, tougher you know, parole, bail. These things need to be dealt with. But from a funding perspective, there's a lot of focus, obviously, on the police funding. But isn't there a need for more funding of just court systems? Um, because isn't a big part of the problem that they're out on bail forever? And then, you know, naturally, most people, you don't want to deny them their their constitutional rights and hold them without bail in most cases. So then they're out and then they commit more crimes and it's a vicious cycle. Um, and then the COVID stuff created such a backlog. It's unbelievable because they stupidly shut down the courts. So it, it, isn't that at least as much of a problem as the police funding? I think you're right. That's I haven't looked into that specifically, but absolutely. I think prosecutors, again, they are, they are, triaging and and we also have prisons being shut down all over the place and but at the same time that we have overcrowding that is used as an mm. excuse to release prisoners so uh it's i guess it's just not very sexy at this point to fund more DAs or, or more judges or yes. more capacity to, or more to be able to confine people. No one right. wants to say I'm going to build more prisons, but I mean, yep. we spend money on education, on healthcare and everything with the growth of the population, but it's like, what are you going to do? And it's, it's a brilliant tactic. Then they say there's overcrowding, so you got to right. let them go. Um, exactly. And I think that's just the general sense that we're we're not looking broadly at at this issue. And and I want to just end with, I know you got to run your thoughts on on one of the biggest problems is the increase in juvenile crime and the lack of deterrent. What do you do when you have an entire generation of 10, 11, 12-year-olds that are now now watching their older brothers, you know, in the pipeline much, you know, a little older than them doing real serious stuff, car, armed carjackings and then laughing about it the next day and nothing happens to them? Yeah, I just want to add to our previous subject, though. The other thing that I think we should fund is better prisons. Our our prison system is a scandal in many cases. Mm. It is it is dangerous. It is filthy. It offers no real opportunity for work uh, and structure. And so there's no excuse. We should confine people, but we should make sure that they're safe. Yes. And and have some opportunity to be productive and gain some kind of work skills. So, so some of the conditions that we see in these prisons are totally abysmal. So we don't. It's not just a question of increasing capacity. It's a question of of making that capacity more humane and and 
more likely to have some sort of positive effect on people besides the hope that that does happen, which is some kind of massive change of consciousness and and an acceptance of personal responsibility and turning one's life around. I mean, it's possible to talk to many, many ex-cons who said that prison was the thing that saved them. So that is the case, but we can do it better. As far as the juvenile question, what do you do? Uh, You know, we've been talking, well, I mean, we've been trying to do, do rehab for social breakdown since the since the 60s with massive social programs, very few of which work. The, the social service workers are a few steps away in terms of functioning from their own clients. Uh, and it's one just despairs. And the conservative line, one that I have adopted, is very facile, which is, well, we need to... Re- the the black family needs to be reconstituted that obviously the fact that about 71% of black children are born to single mothers compared to say about 28% of white children and maybe about 16% of Asians and about 53% of Hispanic children born to single mothers. uh, This is a catastrophe. You cannot socialize males on average in a culture where the marriage norm has broken down and and it is considered legitimate for young males to go around impregnating females without any expectation of responsibility. I mean, you're failing to learn the most basic lesson of personal responsibility. But it's easy for conservatives to say rebuild the family, and at least they're saying it because the left continues to be utterly in denial about any significance of family structure. But doing so is very hard. The relationships between males and females in the black community are very, very dysfunctional and tortured. Now, families are breaking down all over. I mean, the white underclasses is what Charles wrote about, uh, Charles Murray wrote about, obviously, in Coming Apart, is starting to follow that trajectory, although the violent street crime has not followed. No. Um, it's, which is curious. Um, but but that's, that's what needs to be done. And policing is always the second best solution. But short of informal social controls, which is family and community, all we've got is incapacitation. And so yep. you're right. You know, we've, deterrence. we've deterrence. We have we have carved out responsibility from juveniles. You know, you got to, you cannot try them as adults for the most grotesquely Grotesque brutal crimes. crimes. Yeah. yeah. So that, that could change. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, but it boils down to, again, you have to have the guts to approach the issue. As you said, racism has become an unfalsifiable proposition in this entire discussion. And, right. and, and Republicans have to shed that fear um, in order to get to the right policy solution here, and I think they're just still a little bit st- too superficial. I, perhaps it's got to get worse again, like you said. Definitely keep us updated. Where could people follow your work? Oh, thank you. Uh, they can just, I guess, Google my Twitter feed, um, Heather McDonald, and, and Twitter. I can never remember the exact handle. <laughs> Apparently, uh, however, Google is starting to put warning signs on my writings about Black Lives Matter. Uh, my recent Spectator piece, I think, is probably 
under some kind of cloud from Google. So, but all the more reason to read it and and move past the trigger warning. Uh, but but I think probably fall, most of my writing and and appearances do, do get posted on my Twitter feed. Perfect. Well, we'll definitely be watching this issue. It is boiling over. Its time has come. We just got to get the right solutions. You'll be at the forefront of that. Uh, please join us again, and thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on, Daniel. It's always a, an honor to speak with you. You're so wise. Take care. So again, folks, that was the very sagacious Heather McDonald. She's been right on crime for decades. And, you know, she mentioned very interesting points there, how nobody wants to say they want to fund more prisons. And the game they play is they say, oh, prison's horrible. This is what happens there. And then it's overcrowding. So they do that on purpose to create this false choice of, hey, you know, you either face this or let them out. But the reality is this is what happens when our government spends money (coughs) on welfare and every other thing (coughs) that it shouldn't be doing. And then when we have comes time for the most vital things, which is locking up. and, And I'm not even talking about even mid-level. I mean, we're talking about people that just demolish neighborhoods that are such a big threat. They're not being deterred, and that includes red states. And there's no initiative to do anything about it. And this is the broad problem with Republicans, that they view everything in terms of political correctness. Oh, I need a talking point. Oh, so here's the point I want to make. Stop making points and start working on policy to save civilization. What needs to happen? Then if you know that's true, you start building the policy and messaging around it and building the case for it. But but that requires believing in something. So, So here's the irony. Unlike five years ago, it's almost universal among every Republican, establishment Republican, liberal Republican. Mitch McConnell talks about it all the time. Oh, crime's terrible. Democrats are better than crime. But it's the same talking point on China. China's a problem. The border is a problem. Fauci did overreach. You know, that's what they'll say on COVID or something. But it's a limited hangout. It's just misdirection, just, a, just enough to have a talking point against the Democrats. I'm looking at all these legislatures, and and again, with the exception of Tennessee, there might be others, but I'm not seeing initiatives to actually combat crime. They'll they'll talk brag about funding for police, but that that's a straw man. There's nothing to do with anything. It's a straw man. So this is what I'm trying to do. The same thing I'm doing on COVID. The same thing I'm doing on every issue. Taking what we all say we believe in and trying to make changes based on it. And this is why I need you guys to join our Liberty Strike Force teams. Again, conaction.network. Um, we're really getting things off the ground. Like I said, we have tons. We have teams in Alaska, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina. Um, we got West Virginia if you want to join. We got North Dakota. We got Iowa. So lots of great potential there. Um, some more states we still need, but this is what I'm trying to do: get bills introduced. I've all week. This is all I've been doing: passing around the best sample bills on each issue I could see. The best, you know, stuff on medical freedom, anti-discrimination, mRNA, um, obviously, you know, big tech censorship, digital privacy stuff, all this stuff, and uh, you know, this is what we need to do. 
but we need to be get real about this. Ultimately, you know, we need massive anti-gang bills. As, as Heather noted, it's not just gang activity, but it still is the majority of it. Anti-gang bills, which would make it easier to prosecute gang members across state lines, incentivize prosecutors' offices to prioritize those cases, slap extra mandatory sentencing for crimes committed in furtherance of gang activity. We'd need to toughen juvenile sentencing for repeat violent offenders. I mean, that's that's just obvious. And, and here's the deal. Yes, you will need... It's not going to look pretty in the sense of you will need to build prisons. You will need to load up the prisons. But that is the result of the last decade of jailbreak policies. You lose your deterrent. So you're going to have to reestablish that deterrent. If every juvenile who goes and punches someone in the face and beats people and robs and does this gets significant punishment for it, you know, all their buddies and their younger siblings will think twice about it. Right now, it's a joke. I'm not talking about truancy. I'm not talking about theft. I'm not talking about shoplifting. I'm talking about people that do serious bodily harm and and destruction to neighborhoods. And multiple times, they don't serve time. There's no way around that. There's no way around that. Obviously, we need to toughen sentencing on carjacking. We need to allow prosecutors, not judges, to decide whether to charge a juvenile as an, as an adult. We need to toughen sentences on those convicted of violent crimes who are caught in felony possession of firearms. And certainly those who go on to commit crimes with firearms. For all this talk about guns, this is the central problem. It's all these guys that commit violent gun felonies, they don't get punished. Mandate that any violation of parole result in automatically serving out the rest of the sentence. Lower the threshold to hold people without bond or with higher bond for certain violent crimes and particularly targeting those with a criminal record. Fund prosecutors' offices. Not more so than police. Prosecutors' offices. Now, you can't just indiscriminately fund it because they'll use it for bad stuff, but specifically targeted to grant programs designed to enforce specific statutes against repeat violent offenders that will result in the longest prison times. Build more prisons and courts. Okay, that's that, that needs to be done. Limit the discretion of judges to allow repeat felons to serve their maximum sentence on probation. You know, under a lot of these recidivism statutes, conviction of a second felony can result in automatically being sentenced to the maximum time. But judges in general have wide latitude to suspend or switch to probation and make probation the maximum sentence. And then a big one is we need to strengthen the street three strikes and you're, and you're out. That is so intuitive. It's so understandable. Now, it doesn't deter all crime, but at least you get the worst of the worst. Um. You know, uh, most states have some version of it, but practically very few. I mean, that should mean if this is your third robbery, if this is your third violent aggravated assault, you had a robbery, you had a murder, yes, you go away for life. I'm sorry. That's, 
you cannot look at the individual. Well, does he really need to be in there until he's old? I don't know. But if you don't, you lose your deterrent. In other words, incapacitation and deterrent work together. I think we need the death penalty for fentanyl trafficking. And then again, I think we do need sheriff's posses, that program. And we need to strengthen your your uh, stand-your-ground legislation. That's a big thing. We need to strengthen stand-your-ground legislation um, outside the home as well as inside the home in states where it needs to be toughened up to bring the civilian force in. Because a lot of people will, will tell me, well, Daniel, I don't need the stupid police. I'm scared of the police myself, given the Fourth Reich, and I am too. Um, we'll just defend ourselves with our guns. The problem is you got to deal with the liability of the system then coming after you. So that needs to be strengthened as well. But again, all of these things are going to require punching through the race card. Because civilians are no different. We have, just like the police interactions, you have these civilian interactions like we saw with that South Carolina Marine protecting his neighborhood and he got crushed over that because the guy's black. And again, I mean, the reality is the the share of the pie of violent crime committed by blacks relative to their percentage of the population is appalling and shocking. And there's no way around that. Like Heather mentioned, I mean, the breakdown of the white family is literally following in that trajectory. But it's interesting that there's one thing that still has not taken off, and that is violent crime. They'll be zombies. They'll be drugged out. Their lives will be destroyed. They're not really roaming the streets, beating people up and carjacking in, in large numbers. So, you know, you, you could find these socioeconomic problems in low-income white areas in the country in some places – what you will what 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 will not mimic the inner city black neighborhoods is the dynamic of violent crime and you have to recognize that and the reality is you can't say i'm not going to equally apply what should be tough on crime for violent crime categories oh because it's going to rope in too many blacks that that's unacceptable and then of course again you know it's unacceptable because it it kills all people, but it particularly kills blacks. And and that that's the reality. So you're gonna hear a lot of superficial talk on crime, but today I wanted to just do a, a straight talk on on this issue. Now, before we sew up the week, I do wanna just quickly move on to some other issues here. Obviously, you have the Pfizer. Uh, Project Veritas video uh, where the guy admitted, this guy, uh, Jordan Walker, the Pfizer Director of Research and Development Strategic Operations. Um, there's something irregular about menstrual cycles, so people will have to investigate that. The COVID vaccine shouldn't be interfering with the menstrual cycles, so we really don't know. I hope we don't find out that somehow this mRNA lingers in the body and like because it will be affecting something hormonal to impact menstrual cycles. I hope we don't discover something really bad down the line. Um, the scale of that scandal would be enormous. Well, we discovered it. It does linger in your body. The the birth rates are plummeting. And still, this underwhelming reaction. As we're talking, we have a bill in Wyoming. By the time you hear it, it, it would have probably failed, but it's in the House Labor Committee, again, by Jeanette Ward, HB 0413, to basically bar the state from ever 
using WHO or CDC guidance to mandate a mask or vaccine or testing. Um, so that's an important thing. We have North Dakota SB 2384. That's the bill banning mRNA vaccines. It will receive a hearing in the Senate Human Services Committee, 9 a.m. local time in North Dakota um, in Bismarck on Tuesday. So anyone out there who could come and testify, it would be greatly appreciated. If you want to join our North Dakota team, let us know. ConAction.network, sign up. Amber has done a terrific, terrific job. Notice I talk a lot about North Dakota. We have so many great bills on medical freedom. There's a reason for it <laughs> because of our team. Um, it's not because there's anything different about North Dakota. Now, does it mean we've succeeded so far in passing it? No, but you at least need someone to introduce it. I'm shocked at how often our teams are the first people on the ground. I mean, after everything we've gone through, oh yeah, Pfizer admitting it might you know, sterilize a generation, died suddenly of a generation. There's no legislation, not one in a lot of these states, super red states. That's what we're working on. And most importantly, I want to draw your intention, attention to what I see so far is the gold standard, gold standard legislation on anti-discrimination. One of the things I call for in the rise of the Fourth Reich to reassert Nuremberg is to codify immunization status because of everything that has happened into anti-discrimination civil rights laws. If there's anything that justified Civil Rights Act, it's this. You have an entire class that's senselessly discriminated against in the most grotesque way, and there's no science behind it. There never is an excuse for saying you have to get something to accommodate someone else. And again, we have the weight of the universe, of pharma, of tech, of government, of global governments, of all upon those people, and they have so much more in the pipeline putting on people's bodies. This needs to be staunched. Again, when you're playing catch-up on an issue, you need to overcompensate. And mind you, nothing we're doing is overcompensating. Like, that would be if we had bills starting to have the death penalty and, you know, 50 years in prison for what these people are doing. Anything short of that is, uh, is not overcompensating. But Florida SB 222, it, it codifies immunization status into the Florida civil rights uh, statutes. It prohibits the state from collecting people's immunization status without permission or giving it to the feds. It bans vaccine, vaccine passports for any vaccine, not just COVID. Bans employers from discriminating in any way against employees based on, again, any Vaccine status prohibits healthcare providers from conditioning treatment to any vaccine status. It prohibits discrimination in all insurance, life, disability, and health insurance based on vaccination status, and then bans all vaccine school mandates of all genre vaccine. Might have other stuff in it, um, but that's what I've seen so far. That needs to be in every state. There is no justification. I don't want to hear the, oh, but the private sector business... They cannot discriminate on on much, you know, other ground, you know, much more sensible grounds. You, know, you always have employees that are horrible, and then you try to fire them. Oh, it's discrimination! Give me a break. We have many state laws and businesses. All we're saying is, don't senselessly. See, every other thing is usually sometimes the employee or the customer wants an action. They want an active form of something. You have to accommodate that in law. Think about ADA, the amount of money businesses have to spend complying with it. 
We're not asking you to do anything. We're asking you to not mandate on someone's body that they inject something physically. That that should never affect you. Okay, if you want it, you go get it. If we're going to abolish all discrimination laws, um, uh, then, then I won't push this. But we have them. This is the least intrusive. You're not asking them to do anything. It's the most invasive thing an employer could ask of a customer or an employee. And it's, it's, it's senseless. After everything we've gone through, we, that needs to happen. And yes, it's not just COVID. Even if it's a shot that you think is good. So what? Go get it. He's stupid for not getting it then. That's what we need. But the question with all of this, whether it's China, whether it's immigration, and that includes, by the way, legal immigration, 365,000 Chinese visas for students every year, F1 visas, whether it's crime, whether it's medical freedom, the cultural stuff, does it have to get worse for our people to get activated? You know, you saw it was only when Pharaoh took away the straw to make the bricks did it finally force the issue. Otherwise, people, you know, they had a slave mentality. Didn't want to leave Egypt. So they wanted to continue being a slave until they could no longer even be a slave. And that's the question. How much more do they need to take from us before we react? And by watching the underwhelming reaction in most of these legislatures, it really makes me wonder, do things have to get worse? I don't know. I don't know, but th- th- there's a lot more going on that I do want to discuss. Also, by the way, Idaho legislators, another important thing, they just introduced... Um, Barbara Ehard, a friend of mine, and uh, one other member, I'm forgetting her name, uh, the two of them introduced the first bill to start negotiating with Oregon on Greater Idaho to rope in the eastern two-thirds counties of Oregon into Idaho. So this is serious. The counties voted already, and now we have legislation introduced in Idaho and Oregon. Oregon's going to be the tough one because it's Democrats, but in Idaho, we need to push this. We might be able to have Idaho vote that we, we want to accept them. That's a huge, huge step. Because remember, this is not going to play out mechanically. That, and then Oregon's going to agree, and then Congress will vote on it. The idea is more to pick the fight and mean it and to have the states start to go – the counties to start to go up to the line and start engaging in interposition against the state and for Idaho to help them, and it will force the issue. These are the sorts of things we need to be pushing. Let me know your ideas on this and more um, as, as this dynamic with the Chinese blimp over Montana plays out. Let me know your thoughts. You can email me, Daniel Horowitz at startmail.com. What a terrific, productive week. This is not just a show, not just entertainment. We work together. We now have about a dozen Liberty and Legislative Strike Force teams uh, that are on the ground working. You could join one, conaction.network. Hope you guys have a terrific weekend. Until Monday, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.